namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang saranamanasami So I'm still pretty, um, I'm still pretty young. I don't look young, but in terms of the, the monastic sangha, I'm only four years old. So my speaking on the Dhamma is a little maybe out of the ordinary, but we're a bit short on monks, so I've been pushed into service. So please bear with me. I'll do my best. The role of, of being uh, one who's speaking on the Dhamma is something that we're trained to take very seriously because it's the reason we went forth. It's the most, uh, we reckon it as the most, the Dhamma is the most valuable thing that there is in human existence. It's, it's strange in a way that something as simple in a, in a certain way as the Dhamma the Dhamma. It simply means the truth of the doctrine or the teaching. It holds such a lofty position. It's the one thing that the Buddha even put above himself. Uh, he uh, gave a reflection in which he observed that a person who lives without having anything to revere is a person who lives in misery. It's a kind of unhappiness, not having anything to hold with reverence in your heart. And he didn't want to dwell that way. He didn't want to abide without anything to revere. So he looked around to see if there was anyone he could revere, but he realized that there wasn't because no one had done what he had done. He was the Buddha, and so he was the one that was bringing the Dhamma to the, to the world. But he said that he could, he could see that the Dhamma was worthy of reverential regard even by him. And so that's what he did. He held the, the Dhamma in the highest regard. He pointed out that the Dhamma exists as truth, whether a Buddha comes along or not to teach it. Sort of like the way we, we reckon the rules of the universe, the physics or chemistry, those, those, those laws pertain as long as there's physical matter, whether we know about them or not. The Dhamma is the same way. Because it's the truth, it's always true. Whether we know it's true or not, it's still true. And so since the Buddha held the Dhamma as the highest, the one thing that's worthy of even his veneration, uh, when speaking of the Dhamma, one takes it very sort of seriously. It's not, it's not a joking matter, although we can we can't allow ourselves to tell a joke, to have a little sense of humor, but the, the matter itself is, is quite serious. It's serious because it concerns, well, concerns what's really close to our existence, our, our birth and death, life and suffering, meaning and loss of meaning, everything that human beings concern themselves with are kind of bounded by birth and death and everything that goes in between. And the Dhamma is teaching about that, the very causes of it, 
how to escape the suffering of it. We're bound up in this cycle of becoming. Every morning when we wake up, we go from a state of deep, dreamless sleep where there's nobody, where we don't actually have an existence. And from that state, physiologically, we become, again, the person that we were when we fell asleep, more or less. A very good copy of who we were when we fell asleep. And every time we take a position on something that's happening to us, we get angry about something, we get delighted about something, we become afraid of something, we're becoming that person that we are when we have that mental state. So all day long, we're becoming one thing after another. And when we let go of one thing that we've become, say we've become an angry version of ourselves, and we become a moody or a grouchy or a remorseful or a whatever comes after that version, then one thing dies and another thing gets born. And as long as we do that from moment to moment out of unknowing, out of just habit, out of just one thing triggering another, then we're, we're caught in the vicissitudes of whatever it is that we become. We don't have any control. We're just sort of being pushed around by circumstances. We can move for a really long time hours and days and weeks, months and years, lifetimes, just being pushed around by circumstances, by what came before, how we reacted before, what conditioning that we have, how we were trained, the things that happened to us, inform how we react to the present moment, as long as we don't realize that there's an alternative there's something else we could do, rather than just become over and over again, out of habit and the deep ruts of conditioning that are grooved into our minds. It's a radical idea, the idea that you could choose to intervene in this constant becoming process that you could grab hold of the very mechanism of birth and death and bend it to your will. If you could do that, what you would almost certainly choose to do is to manipulate it in such a way that you no longer have to suffer, that you could actually be happy. You would consistently choose to be happy because that's a superior alternative to choosing to be miserable. You would consistently choose to be of benefit to other people if you had that much control over your becoming. You would become something that was kind, compassionate, generous, uh, friendly, helpful, decent, available, tender, Equanimous, balanced, cheerful, all these good qualities you could you could just choose to become them 
moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day, for a whole lifetime. And when it's time to die, if you are truly the master of this becoming process, you might decide to go ahead and stop becoming. It's kind of the idea of parinibbana. So what the Buddha is offering us with the Dhamma is essentially the tools to grab hold of this becoming process, understand it, how it works, see into it deeply, see the hidden levers and knobs that control the process of becoming and teach ourselves how to control them so that we're no longer the slave, we become the master of our own becoming. And we put ourselves in the driver's seat, we have choice then on what to become. And the process itself is actually quite incredibly simple in the sense that it's not difficult to understand. It's very straightforward, but it doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Something can be simple and not necessarily easy. But even though it's not easy, given what's at stake, it's still worth doing. And when I say it's not easy, I mean it's, it's not something that you do in an afternoon or a weekend or a semester. It takes a while. It takes dedication and practice and a certain kind of devotion to the goal. In order to really put yourself into it, to really give yourself to the practice and inhabit it, make it a lifestyle, you actually have to believe that it's possible, that it's not just a pipe dream. And so this is where one of the most important spiritual faculties, the faculty of faith, is relevant. On some level, you have to have a sense of conviction that it's possible for a human being to overcome the habitual tendencies of their mind and interject their own choice into what they will become moment after moment. And the best way to get that faith is to try it out. If you try out the practices, you immediately get to see that they pay off in the way the Buddha tells us that they will pay off. And good examples are the practices of sila. So the, the most fundamental one is generosity. This is a counterintuitive practice. The Buddha says that a person who is generous is reborn in a deva realm. And in this very life, you can experience that phenomenon by when confronted with a situation where you could choose to either be miserly or to be generous. If you choose to be generous, even if it, it's a little unpleasant to reach into your pocket or to give your time or whatever to begin with, it takes maybe there's a, some sort of internal resistance initially. The actual act of giving something 
to somebody else or to a community or the world at large. The act of being generous, of giving something away, leaves a kind of pleasant mental residue. It actually feels good. If you've ever done something nice for somebody, whether they really acknowledge it or not, it doesn't leave any trace of regret. And this is a, it's only evident if you're looking for it. If you do something for someone and you never sort of inspect how it feels, and you might overlook that fact. In the same way that you might overlook the fact that doing something selfish or miserly it doesn't actually feel that great. It might seem like it gives you some sense of safety or control or whatever, but it doesn't result in actual happiness. It doesn't give you peace or safety. It just gives you a temporary, momentary sense of uh, getting what you want. And the more consistently you practice this, this practice of generosity, the more you get to see it. And one of the key tasks of all these practices that the Buddha gives us, starting with generosity, is to observe, to watch what happens when you decide to do something, whether it's generous or not. If you're actually watching what happens in your mind, then you're in a position to actually learn the lessons that are available to be learned. Every moment has the potential to teach you something if you really attend to it in just the right way. The practice of meditation grounds us in an internal observation stance. We're watching what happens internally. We use a meditation object like the breath to anchor our attention. But that's a bit of a misnomer, actually, because our attention is not a boat and you can't really anchor it. But as a metaphor, the idea is that if you're watching your breath, most likely what will happen, and not too long, is your mind will go do something else. And right then, as soon as you notice that your mind went off and did something else, there's a possibility for you to learn something. Right there, your mind is showing you that it's not yours. We just got done reading through that sutta earlier this evening, the Anatta Lakana Sutta, Discourse on Not-Self, Characteristic of Not-Self. And our own minds have this characteristic of not really obeying us, not really doing what we want. If they really just did what we want, then we would just choose to have them always be happy, <laughs> have them always be in a good mood, have them always be imperturbable and content. But they're not really that much under our control. So you can learn that lesson just by doing meditation, uh, trying to. Uh, early on, you see that the mind is very sort of, has a mind of its own, as it were. And as you persist with the practice and you get better at it, you see that the mind is trainable. It's not, you can't ultimately direct it, but you can train it the way you can train a dog or an elephant. A lot of these metaphors around training are used for good reason, because the mind responds to consistent direction, guidance, prompting, intention very much the same way any living organism would respond to those kinds of forces. And 
you see that the mind has this kind of nature of a trainable animal. And it's, and it's also showing you in that way that it's not really yours. It's just with, sort of with you. Uh, it's, it's in your vicinity and it's something that you can interact with. If you become angry when you drift away from your meditation object, even that reaction can teach you something if you reflect on it correctly. And so this is the other half of all the practices is reflection. If you do something generous and you don't reflect on that generosity, then you miss a large part of the benefit of the generous act. You miss out on seeing that the generosity paid off in the immediate moment, like while you are doing something generous, you are in that moment necessarily not doing anything unwholesome. So you're cultivating a wholesome state in that moment. And if you reflect while you're doing it, you see it as it's happening. If you reflect later, you see that's what was happening then. And you can also inspect your mind as to how it reacts to the memory of what you were doing in that reflection. Furthermore, the more instances that you have of intentionally doing something generous, even if you had to go against initial internal resistance to do it, the more examples that you have of this effect and the stronger your faith becomes that there really is something to this teaching. And I use the generosity example as a starting point. Generosity will show you this. Any kind of restraint will show you this same lesson. So if there's an impulse towards um, anger or harshness or coldness or indifference or bitterness or gossip or backbiting or any sort of unlovely interaction with the rest of the world, anything that's ungenerous verbally or physically. Anytime you restrain yourself, you just refrain from doing something unwholesome. You have exactly the same opportunity to inspect what it's like to restrain yourself and how that feels in the moment and then how it feels to reflect on it. If you reflect on it, you get at least twice as much benefit than just doing the thing itself. So positive acts that are wholesome give you multiple opportunities to learn, to reinforce your understanding, to reinforce your faith and your view and your grasp of the Dhamma. And every act of restraint that you undertake in line with the Dhamma gives you those same kinds of opportunities. And so the Buddha is constantly asking us to reflect. For example, in the sutta that we read tonight, he first goes through the sort of catechism. He says, what do you think about this, monks? Is form permanent or impermanent? And they all admit that it's impermanent. The only way you can really conclude that it's impermanent is to sort of look at your experience. You know, are your experiences of form permanent or not? 
And you can look at that in a lot of different ways. Maybe you can say something like this. This bowl seems to have some kind of permanence. But the word form, rupa, sometimes translated as body, is pointing to more than just our conception of the physical universe. It's pointing to our experience of it. So you might ask yourself, if I'm experiencing the bowl right now as being something solid and real and having a certain permanence, and then I leave the room, is it still there? Is it still in my immediate experience? It's not, of course. And you can see that your experience of form is constantly undergoing change. It's almost as if you imagine yourself in the middle of your mind, sort of sitting in a theater, that the whole world is revolving around you and it's constantly surging here and there. And Sometimes it's hot and sometimes it's cold and sometimes it's uh, hard and sometimes it's soft and the four elements are constantly displaying themselves in different ways. So your direct tactile and sensory experience of the world is constantly undergoing change. And you have some influence over it in the same sort of way that you have some influence over your mind, but you do not have control over it. It does not belong to you. It's not yours. And that's because its impermanence is revealing that to you. You can only recognize that fact if you look, if you reflect. Is form permanent or impermanent? Then he asks, is that which is impermanent painful or pleasurable? And this is another one of these questions that requires a little reflection to really get what it is he's pointing to. The, word, the words painful and pleasurable, sukha, dukkha, are the two polarities of all affect of experience. Things are either like you're okay with them or you'd like to have less of them. And there can be a huge scale of that. There's a kind of midpoint in between the two that you might call like neither this nor that. It's just sort of neutral. But for the most part, if you look closely right now, if you examine your actual experience, some things are painful. Maybe your, your posture or the pressure of your seat or some nagging thing in the back of your mind or a song that won't stop going through your head or something. Something is not very pleasant. And there are other things that are totally okay. Maybe the way your shoulder feels right now, or the way the air feels in the room, or just how you feel settled in your seat. You can find this sort of sukha dukkha field in every moment of experience. And it's almost never all one or the other. It's a mixture, usually. But because it's constantly changing, you can't really give it the label, it's pleasurable. Like it's not just pure that. And anything that's not pure, say pleasure, or pure uh, refuge that you can take, solid, consistent source of happiness that is unshakable. Anything that doesn't have that quality is necessarily not satisfactory. So anything that's not perfectly satisfactory is not satisfactory. And this unsatisfactoriness is the thing that he's calling painful. So life as we experience it is 
characterized by unsatisfactoriness. Even though there's some nice things mixed in too, the nice things aren't permanent. And therefore, you can't really derive any kind of substantial satisfaction from them. If something is impermanent and unsatisfactory, and then the last phrase that he gives to that, and subject to change. And it seems like that's a redundant phrase. Something which is impermanent seems, well, necessarily it's subject to change. But that phrase, subject to change, actually is a bit of a code word, code phrase in Pali. Uh, it's actually a metaphor for um, subject to death. So our bodies are subject to death, our friends are subject to death, our parents are subject to death, everybody that we know. And our moment-to-moment -moment experience of a location, a set of circumstances, it all can pass away. So anything which is impermanent and unsatisfactory and subject to passing away, is it fit to regard that as belonging to me or somehow myself? And in asking the question, of course, the monks reply, no, venerable sir, it is not fitting to regard form in that way as belonging to me. But the only way they can conclude that is by reflecting. So it's important to look at every one of the teachings that the Buddha gives, the Dhamma. It's for reflection. Anything that you're doing as part of your Dhamma practice should have reflection built into it. Meditation is almost a continuous reflection process. You might say that investigating your experience and reflecting on it is what the practice is all about. If you really understood what was going on in your mind and how things worked, if you'd really penetrated it, when you finally get down to the bottom of how it is that works, that things work the way they work through this practice of reflection and examination, then you're on the verge of seeing the truth. You're on the threshold of Nibbana. And that's the goal that the Buddha is pointing towards. This is what the practice leads to. This mysterious sounding thing, Nibbana. And that's what I was alluding to when I was talking about uh, the idea of being able to take control of the levers and knobs of becoming and stop becoming that which is painful to be and choose instead to become that which is pleasant to be. Because as long as we're, we have these human bodies and these human minds, we're going to experience the world. And if we have a choice to experience the world however it presents itself to us, even if it presents itself to us as the loss of our possessions and our loved ones, the loss of our health, and inevitably the loss of our lives. If we can experience that with equanimity and with balance and with positive attitude, because we've gained control over the way our minds operate, then we'll be in a, a fantastic position to uh, experience joy and happiness in this life and to be a source of joy and happiness for everyone around us. But you can't do it by just sort of sitting on your cushion and following your breath. You have to sit on your cushion, follow your breath, 
and notice what your mind is doing. Pay attention to your mind. And when it does things, reflect on what it's doing and why, and what that means, what the implications are. Every time you reflect on the three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena, which are the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness, the characteristic of impermanence, and the characteristic of not-self. Every time you notice them in your experience, you're driving it a little deeper into your own subconscious, the reality of how the world really is, rather than the way that you've habitually assumed that it was. And it's the disparity between our presumptions about the world and the way it actually is that's the root of all of our misery and confusion. And the root of everyone else's misery and confusion as well. When I said it was simple to do, I was thinking about a famous line in more than one sutta in which the Buddha talks about his practice prior to becoming the Buddha. He says, and it's something along the lines of, when I was just an unenlightened bodhisattva. By the way, the word bodhisattva means one who is seeking enlightenment. And so we are all bodhisattvas in that sense. When I was merely an unenlightened bodhisattva, I examined the content of my mind and whatever I found there that was unwholesome, that I undertook to abandon. And those unwholesome qualities which had not yet arisen in my mind, those things I undertook to avoid their arising, to prevent them from arising. When I examined the content of my mind and I noticed skillful qualities there, those things I attempted to uphold and develop and when I examined my mind and I saw the lack or absence of skillful qualities, those things I undertook to bring about, to develop. And so it's almost a black and white practice that he was doing. Uphold the wholesome and abandon the unwholesome. So simple. It could hardly be simpler. It almost sounds... Almost like he's kidding us, right? It like, sounds almost like a joke. How could it be this simple? But it really is, because everything that's wholesome has to do with seeing the truth about not-self. Because generosity requires that you set aside yourself. Humility requires that you set aside yourself. Restraint requires that you set aside the urges and desires and yearnings of the self. When you develop these qualities, you have to do them in the face of the resistance of the belief in the self. And even that, even the belief in the self, <laughs> it's not under our control, not directly, it doesn't belong to us. It's just something that's happening in our minds. We undertake these practices in order to unravel that belief. That's always struck me as very amusing. You can know, you can intellectually appreciate the truth that this phenomenon that we call self, or even the 
the idea of possession is merely a mental thing. If you decide to own something, go to the store and you buy something, it transforms from being not mine to mine by this little transaction where you give a piece of paper or a piece of plastic to the cashier and you take the sweater or the pair of shoes or the cup or whatever it is that you bought and now it's yours. And so that act of possessing things is something that you're doing with your mind. And you can realize that's what you're doing, again, only if you reflect. But just because you know that's what's happening, that that's what you're doing, doesn't necessarily give you um, control over it. So even the operation of the self is not-self, characterized by not-self. A little cosmic joke there for us to appreciate in our practice. The wholesome is really very, um, in many, many ways, very mundane, very obvious. The precepts that were just uh, recited, and to take the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. That's something that someone who's interested in developing Dhamma, that's a precept that a Dhamma developer would take. And it's, if you take it seriously, like you try not to take anything's life, that requires kind of going against the grain of the self from time to time. Insects will bother you, and sometimes maybe even small animals will bother you, and under really extreme circumstances, you might get angry enough at another person that the thought of strangling them might come to mind. Uh, if you live long enough, someone will probably really make you very angry and you'll feel the murderous rage come over you. Fortunately, we have the possibility of restraining ourselves from carrying out those things that occur in the mind. Those acts of restraint depend on a certain faith that it's worth doing. And it all comes back again to how faith is a root factor in developing the path to enlightenment. And the way to develop faith is to undertake the practices and to reflect on them. So the loop goes round and round. Take the precepts, take them seriously, try to undertake them and you try to uphold them. Again, that's only half the job. Whenever you realize that you're about to break a precept, or that you've broken a precept, or that you've upheld a precept in the face of resistance, whenever those things occur, you have the opportunity to, to reinforce your learning of the Dhamma, to see the not-self characteristic, to see the unsatisfactory characteristic, and to see the uh, impermanent characteristic showing themselves to you. And if you do that, whether you're 100% perfectly good precept upholder or not, even if you're only a 95% good or 85%, whatever your batting average is, that's less important than the fact that you're, you're watching what happens. You're seeing how the mind operates. There are, unfortunately, some very skilled concentration meditators in the world who don't really reflect on their experience, and so they don't get the benefit of their meditation. 
they just know how to quiet the mind and sit peacefully for long periods of time, and that's certainly uh, a good thing. They're not out making trouble for people. But if they don't, if one practices meditation and doesn't learn the lessons that meditation is constantly offering, then you're really only getting a, a portion, a small portion of the benefit that's there for you. The purpose of meditation is to help you train your mind for the purpose of reflection, so that when you reflect properly and you see deeply into how things work, you'll see what the Buddha saw, and your mind will come to the same conclusion that his mind came to. You'll see the Dhamma. So I'll offer that as reflection this evening. Anyam vajam kumbhavatayasa kukurangadamasi 